Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to be. So open up your Bible to that part of our study in Romans. We're going to look at five verses today. This morning's message is entitled, The Adopted Heart and the Heart of Adoption. The Adopted Heart and the Heart of Adoption. Uh, This may seem like a really strange passage to Uh, kind of quarter off from the rest of this chapter. Um, There are things we're going to discover in the rest of chapter 9 that will really give us a better understanding of what God is saying in these first five verses. But just for the the sake of time, you didn't want me preaching for two hours this morning, and uh, my body doesn't want me preaching for two hours either. So, verses 1 through 5, we're going to learn about Something really simple, uh, but something also very profound. And and that is what it means to be adopted by God. We're going to discover some of the implications to that truth. The fact that we as believers are actually adopted into God's family, that has implications for the way we think about ourselves and our relationship to God. But it's also going to affect the way that we think about other people, particularly people that we love. Family members, husbands, wives, children, parents, neighbors, co-workers, other American Christians that have the same access and opportunities that we have where we live during the time in which we live. So... Um, starting in verse 1, we're just going to read through verse 5, and we're going to be discovering a couple more uh, passages that have to do with these verses in other places in the New Testament, also places where the Apostle Paul is the author. So, verse 1 of chapter 9, Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants. And the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Um, I'm reading from the New American Standard, as usual. That's what I preach from, and, and I notice... Hopefully you will too. I'm not sure what copy of the scriptures you're reading from, but uh, two times this concept, this phrase, according to the flesh, shows up here. Did you notice that? According to the flesh, we're going to see it in verse 3, and then you're going to see it also again in verse 5. Now this is really important because it ties in what 
God is saying here in chapter 9 with what he said in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Gives us a bigger context of what's going on, right? You remember what Paul said in chapter 7? He talked about the flesh a lot, didn't he? He said, my flesh is weak. I agree with the law of God. The law of God is good. I agree that coveting is bad. But my flesh is at war. He says, the members of my flesh are at war with the Spirit, with the law of God. And I have this weakness in my flesh. And so I I don't have the ability to be a sinless, good human being when it comes to God's standard. And, And that's the one that matters, right? God's standard. He says, so I acknowledge this weakness in my flesh. And so I cry out, my spirit cries out, from my flesh, who will separate, or I'm sorry, uh, who will deliver me from this, what, body of sin? Who will deliver me from my flesh, from my sinful flesh? And he says, thanks be to God, through who? Jesus Christ. Why? Why do we give thanks to God through Jesus Christ? Because it's through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that our flesh, the problem of our sinful flesh, is actually dealt with before a holy God. Jesus died. He died in our place. He suffered and died on a cross. He was crucified. And his flesh was put to death for the problem of our sinful flesh. And so that through faith in him and through faith alone in Christ can we be saved from our sin that we are beset with in our flesh. So that Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore, because of what Jesus has done for you, if you believe, there is now, not later, not just later, but there is now no condemnation for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus did within time and space. He didn't figuratively die for you. He literally died for you. He was a man. He was also God. But he was a real human being and he went to the cross for you. And so you have all this language about the flesh. And and then in chapter 8, we we have all of this assurance of our salvation just poured out on Christians. There's therefore no condemnation. The Holy Spirit is given to us. It cries out that we are, it testifies within us that we are sons and daughters of God we have this idea of adoption in chapter 8 that we have been adopted and that the spirit testifies with us that we are sons and daughters of God all those who believe and so we have this power and this deliverance over the flesh now that we are sons and daughters of God so now we get to chapter 9 Paul is talking remember he's talking to and he's talking about the church He's talking about the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all who have believed from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are all adopted into God's family the exact same way. Not through temple work or religious ceremony. All through faith alone in Christ alone. Whosoever believes in him And so now that we come to chapter 9, we discover something about, first of all, about Paul's heart, but then also 
about the heart of adoption itself. So what we recognize in, in, in verses 1 through 5 is that Paul is going to come to two conclusions. We don't even have to get ahead past verse 5 to know where he's going, do we? Because he uses this language. I wish that I could be. I could wish that I were a curse from Christ. Concerning my, my, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, fellow Jews, who who have all of these things, who have been blessed in all these different ways. And then he kind of bookends this with, again, with this phrase, according to the flesh. Verse 5, he says, he qualifies his statement. They belong to the Father. He says, they, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ? But he qualifies it by that phrase, again, according to the flesh. Because he doesn't want them and he doesn't want the church, he doesn't want us to think to misunderstand the relationship of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, Israel, as a whole, and God's elect, that, that is, believers in the church in New Testament times, and us as well. And so, he comes to these two conclusions. Number one, that he cannot be accursed from Christ, it's impossible. Even if he wishes, even if somewhere in his heart he has a passion for his family members, for his cousins, for his neighbors, for the people he grew up with, for maybe his rabbi who taught him for so many years. Even though he loves them that much to where he says he is continuously grieved. Even though that's the case, he cannot be a curse from Christ. Why? Because of the way adoption works. We're not adopted because of our merits. We're not adopted because of our desire to be adopted. We're adopted from God's free choice. His grace. His unmerited favor. His mercy. So the conclusions that he's going to come to and that we can come to already without even reading any further than verse 5 is that he cannot be a curse from Christ. No believer can be a curse from Christ because of the dynamic of adoption, because of what adoption is. Secondly, and equally as important in this passage, is that nothing according to the flesh can make a person a child of God. Even though... He has great grief in his heart. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you feel that way about somebody right now in your family. Somebody that you know. I hope so. I hope there are people in your life that you are grieved about every day. People who don't know Christ. And who you wish with all of your might would come to faith. But you know it has to be the work of God. It can't be your work it can't be the fact that they live in a godly home or a Christian environment a Christian culture or subculture it has to be God but yet we have this grief like Paul describes here he calls it <clears throat> great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart but he realizes 
And God teaches us in this passage that nothing according to the flesh can make a person a child of God. Those are the two things we recognize immediately from what Paul is saying in this passage. Number one, the way adoption works, it is freely the gift of God. If you belong to God through the grace of Christ, you cannot be a curse from Christ. You've been chosen and adopted through God's grace, through faith. And then secondly, nothing according to the flesh can make a person a child of God. These two things go hand in hand in this passage. The first thing that we notice in this passage, number one, is we see the heart of the adopted. What should the heart of an adopted child of God look like? Grateful, merciful, passionate. So many other different places we can go in Scripture, especially in Paul's life, and discover how he applies this to his ministry and his life. Look at verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn over in your Bible just a few pages. 1 Corinthians, the next book after Romans. <clears throat> Paul's letter to the church, to the Christians in Corinth, sheds light on his attitude toward the lost. And not just to his kinsmen according to the flesh, but to others. Starting in verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may, might win those who are without the law. Now verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Now stop there for a moment. We know from other places where Paul talks about the dynamics of salvation that he doesn't mean that he can actually cause people to be saved. What is he saying? He's saying there's, there's, if there's any encumbrance, if there's any problem between me that I can help and someone who needs to come to faith in Christ, someone who is separated from Christ, who has not been adopted by God's grace, I'm going to remove it. There are so many barriers today. There are generational barriers. There are... Uh, conservative and liberal barriers. There are ideological barriers. There are political barriers. There are racial barriers. There are all kinds of barriers, bar uh, barriers that people tend to, to, to not be willing to remove so that they can reach someone with the gospel. It wasn't just this way with Paul. It continues today. But he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 
Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See the heart of the adopted? That's the heart of the adopted. To have a passion. To see lost people repent and come to Christ. And to be willing to remove any encumbrance so that they might come to Christ through your influence, your ministry. A passion for the lost. Paul had a passion for the old community that he belonged to. He didn't run around with them anymore. He didn't do the things that they did. He didn't practice the things they practiced. He didn't hang out with them on the weekends. But he had a passion for them. He had a passion for his old community. Listen to some of those characteristics of the old community. Back in Romans 9, he calls them my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Paul's not saying that as a Christian, a Christ follower, that he denounces and abhors and laughs and scoffs at all of those Old Testament practices, temple practices. No, he loves those things because he sees that they pointed to Jesus Christ. And he looks back at the old community that he used to belong to and he says they... They don't get it. These things are good. This community is good, but they're blinded and they don't understand what all these things point to. They don't understand that the Old Testament sacrifice was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who is going to be given for the sins of the world. They don't understand that the tabernacle represented God's presence and that that many, many years from now, Jesus was going to come and he was going to be God tabernacling with his people. God coming down in the flesh. He had a passion, continued to have a passion for the community that he used to belong to. What community did you used to belong to? Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's an actual community of people that extends beyond your family. A group of people that used to live a certain way, do certain things. What community did you used to belong to? Do you have a passion for them to come to know Christ? Because the temptation is for us as Christians, once we're adopted into the family of God, to turn our backs completely on them and just forget about them because it's just too difficult. Do you have unceasing grief in your heart for family members who do not know Christ? Being adopted into the family of God does not mean that we turn our backs on the old community but that we pray for them. We know how to pray for them more than anyone else does. Did you know that? Think about that for a moment. 
Paul knows exactly how to pray for his brothers and sisters according to the flesh. The people he used to rub shoulders with every day. No other Christian knew how to pray for those people in his life, in his former community, than Paul did. And he prayed for them because he knew how they thought. He knew what made them tick. And he knew that as an adopted child of God, God had chosen him to stand in the gap for that old community to pray for them, to lift them up. No one knows, no other Christian knows that former community of yours better than you do. Pray for them. Pray for them. Don't bury that grief, but use it. Use it to lift them up in prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses also that energy and that passion in a new way. Not only is he grievous, passionate about the former community he belonged to, but also he is just as passionate about the new community that he belongs to. Listen to his words here, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 19. He says, and this is his introduction to the letter, to many other churches who were going to get this letter. But this is in the letter to the Ephesians. Starting in verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Sound familiar? I think this sounds very much like what he's saying about his former community. He's like, they have... They have all these things. They have all the ceremonies. They have all the foreshadowing of the Christ. And I, I wish they would come to realize who Jesus is. And he also prays for the new community that he's part of, the community of Christians in the church. And he says, I pray for you constantly. That your eyes would continually be opened to all the things that you have in Jesus so that you would realize the glory of your adoption, being part of the family. See, you can do that same thing. We can do that same thing as Christians. You can pray for your former community that you belong to. You know how to pray for those people. You can continue to pour out your heart. Why? Because you've been adopted. You've been adopted. That's the heart of someone who's been adopted, to love the community out of which you came and to know how to pray for those people because no one else knows what it means to be a part of that community like you do. But then also, as a New Testament believer, you know how to belong to a new community of people who are also adopted just like you, new brothers and sisters, who need to be encouraged who need to press on, who need to press forward. 
see the heart of the, <clears throat> of the adopted in this passage. <clears throat> we also see in Romans 9 the heart of adoption itself. <clears throat> what adoption actually is. It is not the casual rubbing up against the family of God. It's not being at the right place at the right time. It is a complete work of God through Jesus Christ. Paul gives a little bit of his testimony in the book of Galatians, just a few pages over. I want to read for you. You can turn there if you like. Galatians chapter 1. You're like, man, this was like Bible drill or something. Turning a lot of pages today. In Galatians chapter 1, I want you to hear what Paul says. This is his story, starting in verse 11. We're going to read through verse 17. Galatians 1, 11 through 17. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. <clears throat> but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to those <clears throat> who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul says, uh, he was not in a situation prior to his conversion, where he was what we like to call sometimes getting close to God. <laughs> it's amazing. When we, when we, whenever I hear, uh, and, and I've heard several friends, people, contemporaries of mine who, who preach, and they talk about people's problem is that they're far away from God. They need to get close to God. And, and if you were to talk to your neighbors and, and, and ask them, relatively safe questions like, hey, do you have any kind of spiritual belief? Do you feel like you're close to God? Some of them who are not born-again Christians might even say, well, I feel pretty close to God. Right? I feel fairly close to God. They feel spiritual. They might watch, you know, some sermons on TV or listen to podcasts, some kind of Christian podcast. They're kind of getting their fill of God things and they feel like they're close to God in some ways. Or maybe their life is going well. Things aren't going bad in their life so they kind of feel like they're in favor with God maybe or something. It's really a bad way to describe um, whether or not we belong to God because it's so subjective. Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, I was not close to God. I was far away from God. I thought I was close to God. Many of my Pharisee friends thought I was close to God. As a matter of fact, they would consider me closer to God than they were. I was the cream of the crop. 
I knew the law like the back of my hand. But he would say, I was not close to God. I was farther away from God than anybody else. He many times referred to himself as the chief of sinners. The worst of the worst. He would ask questions like this. Why, why do I think God chose me for this ministry? Because if he could display his grace through someone like me, other people could see that and know that he could make a difference in their life. That he could save them. Paul would say, I was not close to God. I was far away from God. How far away was Paul from God? In Acts chapter 9, we see Paul's testimony. Now, if you're worried, because you know we're on point number two, and pastor always does three points. Have no fear. There are only two today. In Acts chapter 9, uh, we find at the end of... Um, Kind of, kind of the beginning of, of Paul's conversion. Paul is the guy who the Bible says in the book of Acts was receiving people's coats. He was the, coat, he was the doorman, basically, um, for, the, for the Jews who stoned Stephen to death. Stephen preached one of the most incredible sermons, if not the most amazing sermon in the New Testament because he preached Jesus from Genesis all the way through the Gospels. He explained to the Pharisees that were getting ready to stone him that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. It was amazing. Paul was there. He held the coats of the people who removed their coats to stone Stephen. They killed Stephen. The Bible says after that, the disciples literally became Jesus' witnesses, as he said in Acts 1.8. In Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The Bible says that they spread out from there. And as they went to Judea and Samaria, they were preaching the gospel. People like Philip. But Acts chapter 9 tells us of Paul not close to God at all, took part in killing apostles. And all of a sudden, he's on the road to Damascus, condemning Christians, people who belong to the way, as it was called, the early church. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Acts 9.3 says... He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord or sir or master? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Men who traveled with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul got up from the ground. <clears throat> and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. He goes into Damascus, just to paraphrase, 
The rest of the story. God sends a messenger there who tells Saul what God's going to do with his life. God's going to use you to take the gospel to the world. And it's made known to Paul at that point that he was going to suffer. His life was going to be one of suffering. And as he watched Stephen stoned to death, he would experience those same types of stonings as he would leave cities. He wouldn't be stoned to death like Stephen, but he would get within inches of his life. Paul was not close to God until God invaded his life, opened up his eyes, and adopted him by his grace. And so he writes in Philippians 3, he says, Therefore, he talks about all these things that he had going for him. All these things, starting in verse 4, this is Philippians 3, 4. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Although, he says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. What does this sound like? A little bit like Romans 9, 4, and 5, doesn't it? All these benefits. All these benefits simply for being born Jewish. And he wasn't just a Jew. He says, I was a Pharisee. I was an expert in God's law. I was the zealous, the most zealous of all of them. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Verse 7, listen to what he says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul was close to God in the way that human beings think they can get close to God. He was closer than anyone else, than all of his friends, than all of his family. According to him, than all other Jews. If if there was a guy who you would think, surely this person will become a Christian, All of the conditions are right. I mean, how could they not become a Christian? See, being adopted into God's family is not about fleshly conditions. It's about a moment when God decides to speak to a heart and to say to a human heart, 
wake up. You are a sinner condemned to death and I am offering you salvation, life through my son if you will just believe in him. And that is your only way out. That's how we're adopted. When God speaks and we hear his voice and we respond in faith, we become a child of God. We learn in this passage the heart of the adopted and we see the heart of adoption itself and how it works. How close are people in your life? People that are around you. How close are they? Say, well, I've got a friend who's come to church once or twice with me. I'd say they're maybe a little closer than other people. I'm not worried about them as much or whatever. Maybe you have a family member who has a background in church attendance or something like that or maybe they own a Bible. How close are people in our community? In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, you remember the story of a, a Pharisee and a publican, a tax gatherer, both go to the temple to pray. The legalist, Pharisee, lifts up his face up into heaven, lifts up his hands. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for making me the way you did. I'm a good person. I tithe. I go to church. I do these things. Thank you that I'm not like this tax gatherer over here. The Bible says a tax gatherer pray this way had his head bowed to the ground was unwilling even to look up he was so embarrassed began to beat his chest passionately and say, said Lord have mercy upon me the sinner he was comparing himself with the Pharisee as well he was saying I'm the sinner me have mercy on me Jesus says do you know who went home justified that day the one who pled for mercy Pharisee thought he was close to God the other man knew that he wasn't in Luke 15 there's a parable of uh, a lost sheep a lost coin and then a lost son and Jesus is telling that story to a group of Pharisees the first story is the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. He leaves the 99 who are still all together to go and search for the one who is lost. The end of the parable, he talks about a woman who lost a coin, but then at the end, and this is the one that most people usually latch on to, it gets preached and taught all the time, is a parable, parable of the Usually we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the parable of the son who's outside at the end of the story. Because things change towards the end, Jesus says, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? As a father, had two sons. One of them came of age, asked for his inheritance, left home, spent all of his inheritance, squandered all of his money, finds himself 
eating the pods that the pigs are eating. He's an indentured slave to someone else. And he says, what, what am I doing? I could, be a, I could go home. Yeah, my father won't accept me into the household, but at least, at least being his servant, he's a good father. I mean, he's a, he's a good owner. He'll at least treat me decently and give me decent food. I'll just do that. I'll go back to him. He goes home, and before he even gets home, his father meets him on the road, puts his best robe on his son, gives him sandals, puts a ring on his finger, brings him into the house, throws a party for him. The entire household's partying, except for one person, his brother who's out in the field tending the flock. The father goes out to the son to invite him in to celebrate with everybody else, and he refuses. He refuses because he says, I never left you. I didn't squander my inheritance. I've been close to you this whole time. But what Jesus is showing the Pharisees in that story is he's saying, you who think you are close to God are the most distant from God because you don't want to rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's going out to the nations. That God is extending his mercy to the nations. That whosoever believes will come, can come. You're still on the outside of the house. And you think you're close to God. But God's in the house celebrating over his son who came home. It's what adoption is. Adoption is being brought near by the mercy of God. And finally, Peter invites all of his hearers when he preaches that famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says this in verse 39, the promise is for you, he's talking to everyone, most of them were Jewish, Jewish people hearing his sermon. He said this promise, this promise is for you, for your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That's as many people as will be in the family of God. Not those who are close, not those who you think are close, not those who, whose circumstances are that they live in the freest country ever. They live in a time where you can read a Bible on a multiplicity of different platforms. You can have a physical one with paper pages. You can have it on your phone. You can have it on a screen. You can have it on your TV. You can hear the gospel. We think, surely... Americans today are so close to God. Surely people living in the modern era are so close to God. But they're not. They're not. You have been brought close to God. I have been brought close to God through adoption. Through faith alone and Christ alone. Through God's goodness alone. And all the people around us all the people around us are in the same situation. Pray for them. Minister to them. A wise old preacher once said, <clears throat> evangelism, that is sharing your faith. Evangelism is more about talking to God about men or people than talking to people about God.
when you think of the salvation of your kindred, the people around you, you think many times we are burdened with the thought of how to share my faith with this person. You know what you can always do? Go into your closet, bow down at your bed, kneel down, and pour out your heart to God like Paul did. And continue to have an unceasing grief, knowing that it has to be God's work, but also knowing that He will answer your prayers. He will open up doors. He will send people. He will send people like the person that was sent to tell Paul what his ministry was going to look like, what God was going to do in his life. This is the heart of one who's adopted, and it's the heart of adoption. Let's pray together, and then we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, thank you, Lord. Oh, what, a, what a heavy message from your word today. God, I confess that I very rarely think this way, the way that Paul does about people. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm so overjoyed and so uh, about being your child and so fixated on the new community that you have given to me, brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, I forget about the community that I'm no longer a part of, the communities that I'm no longer a part of. God, and though you've called me, you've called us to, to leave those and to join hands with other brothers and sisters in your family to come out of the world in a way that we're still in the world. God, there's this temptation to, and really a, a way that we just slip into this numbness and complacency in the way that we think about the lost around us. Teach us, Lord, to trust you and to be assured of our salvation that we've been adopted by your free gift of grace and mercy. But Lord, at the same time, to have an unceasing grief in our hearts for those around us. Lord, continue to keep our hope alive for those around us that many times we, do, we don't see any fruit though we pray and we pray and we pray. We don't see any movement. We don't see any, any fruit. God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage each person sitting here this morning that that conversion, that change can happen in an instant. And it can be completely unexplainable on our part. I pray that hearts would be encouraged here this morning by that fact. And God, God that we would appeal to you over our efforts, our energies, 
God, that we would trust you to do the work that you alone can do. Thank you, Lord, for adopting us. Give us a heart to see others adopted into your family as well.